Hello and welcome to Hillcrest to Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, God Prepares Preparers. First, our scripture reading followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 1, 68 through 79. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God bless the reading of his word. How do you and your family celebrate Christmas? For some, uh, they use an Advent calendar. And on the wall, there's this Advent calendar with little doors in it, and they can open the doors and pull out some little toy or some little piece of candy. I saw on the other day somebody had posted on Twitter that according to their chocolate advent calendar, Christmas is only three days away. (laughs) For some people, they celebrate Christmas by putting an elf on the shelf in a different place around the house for their children to find. For others, there's a special dish that must show up on the table for Christmas dinner. Over in Sweden, they binge watch Donald Duck cartoons on Christmas Eve. I have no idea why, but look it up. That is a national tradition over there. However you celebrate Christmas, you need to make sure it includes two things, praise and preparation. We need to praise God and we need to prepare others for the gift that God sent. This is the best way to celebrate Christmas. Now, this is what we learn in this second of the four first Christmas carols as we find them in Luke's gospel. Now, the, the first part seems obvious, right? Uh, we need to praise God. I mean, that's what our music is all about and our services are all about and the children's nativity plays are all about. It's, it's praising God. It's celebrating Him. But the second idea that we need to prepare others for Jesus, is that part of Christmas as well? It is. And we learn that from a very central character in the Christmas story. He often doesn't show up in our songs at Christmas time. He often doesn't show up in our nativity scenes. We have the camel and we have the donkey and we have the wise men and we have the shepherds, but we don't have this character. And yet he shows up in a dominant way in Luke's account of the Christmas story. I'm talking about John, John the Baptist. In fact, of the first 80 verses that make up Luke's gospel, almost all of them are about John. 
If somebody was reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time and didn't know anything else about the book, they would assume this story is all about John based upon what we read in the first 80 verses of Luke's Gospel. But what we learn about him through the song his dad sings over him helps us understand that we are to praise God and we are to prepare others at Christmas time. The song that uh, Jennifer read to us is Zachariah's Christmas Carol. Zachariah was the name of the man, an aged man, who uh, finally was able to have a child, a son, who grew up to be known as John the Baptist. Now, there's a story behind Zechariah's song. You know, it's always, it, it has always made songs more fascinating and more interesting when you know the story behind them. I, I don't know about you, but Diane and I uh, have gotten into watching these music documentaries behind bands or behind albums or behind songs that have been popular for many years. And according to the algorithms of all the streaming services, they just keep pumping more uh, suggestions to us and we're happy to accommodate. We listen to those as well. Right now we're watching um, uh, the uh, Disney Plus special Get Back, which is uh, Peter Jackson's acclaimed uh, documentary about uh, the Beatles. And it's a fascinating thing. It, it, it's always, uh, it always makes a song more interesting when you know the story behind it. I mean, that's the way it is with songs that we sing in here. Uh, for example, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, you know the story behind that song, I imagine. It was, it was written by a heartbroken man in the 19th century. His name was Horatio Spafford. He boarded his wife and four daughters on a steamship bound from the United States to England, but a great storm came up and engulfed, the waves engulfed that ship, and only his wife survived. His four daughters uh, were, were drowned out at sea. His wife uh, sent a telegram back to her husband and told him the heartbreaking news, and he immediately got a ticket for a steamship to join her in England. And then we got to the spot where the ship carrying his daughters went down. Uh, he began to write out these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We love the lyrics of that song, but the song becomes even more meaningful to us when we understand the story out of which it comes. That's true not only for an old song like that, it's true for the modern praise song, The Heart of Worship. Matt Redman wrote this song uh, after his pastor told the congregation that he was, the, the, the leaders of the church, they were just going to shut down prepared worship and the instrumentalists on the stage for a while, he had become concerned, he had become convinced that too many people in his congregation had become worship consumers instead of worship producers. They'd come into the room to sort of evaluate and critique that which was going on on the stage. That's where the worship was, and they were just observers of it. And he got concerned about that, and the elders of his church got concerned about that, and so he told the congregation, when you walk in here next week, there won't be any musicians on the stage. There won't be any uh, uh, prepared music. There won't be an order of service. Uh, you're uh, just simply going to bring worship yourself. What kind of offering, he asked the congregation, do you bring when you come in to this place? He wasn't talking about the offering and put in a plate, although that's an offering too. He was talking about the offering of the heart, the offering of the lips and song. Now, when they first shut down this uh, uh, prepared music for a while, it was a little bit awkward, and a little bit strange, and long stretches of silence. 
and then pretty soon out from one side of the congregation and then after that out to another side of the congregation an a cappella song broke out and people joined in and sang and then there was this spontaneous prayer that was lifted up from the heart from some part of the congregation pretty soon people were engaged in spontaneous acts of worship in the congregation and after a while, the elders reinstated the prepared worship and the instrumentalists and the order of service, but there was a different heart to it. There was a different feel to it because they had become worship producers instead of worship consumers. And out of that experience, Matt Redman wrote these lyrics. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you require. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you. We sing those lyrics because we like the lyrics, but then we understand the story out of which those lyrics came, and those lyrics become much more meaningful to us. This is true when it comes to this song that we began with today as well, Zechariah's song. The words are profound, the words are interesting, but there's a story behind this song. The man who first sang it, Zechariah, he was a priest. Now, in those days, it wasn't a full-time job because there were so many priests to share the responsibilities. And so, uh, men would come typically two, three times a year to spend a week uh, and in the temple in Jerusalem. And there they would have their responsibilities. In fact, that didn't even solve uh, how to uh, assign out the priests to different places. And so, they drew lots to determine who would do which assignment, who would do which responsibility in the temple. And it was on this, day, on, on this week that Zechariah had in the temple that it was his by lot to go into the holy place. That's the court of the priests right next to the most holy place. And he was to light incense as the act of worship. Incense, according to the Old Testament, is uh, a symbol of prayer. Just as those curling wisps of smoke lift up from the incense plate, in the same way God's people lift up prayers before the throne of God. That's what we find in the book of Psalms. It's also what we find in the book of Revelation, that prayers are incense before the Lord. And so Zechariah was lighting this incense as a symbol of the prayers of God's people being lifted up. What were the prayers of God's people uh, uh, being lifted up at this time? I imagine what they were praying for was deliverance, for rescue. You know, in between the last page of the Old Testament and the first page of the New Testament stand 400 years of divine silence. The last page of the book of Malachi to the first page of the book of Matthew in your Bible, there's a 400-year silence where God did not speak like he spoke to the prophets of the Old Testament, like he spoke to the apostles in the New Testament. And during that time, God's people were invaded by one outside force after another. And I'm sure that they prayed over and over again for God to come and deliver them from these oppressors. And so I imagine this incense that was being lifted up was a symbol of all these prayers for several centuries being lifted up to God. And of course, there was also Zechariah's own prayer. Zechariah had a personal prayer. He and Elizabeth had never been able to have a child that they wanted. And here they were now in their old age. And of course, they continued to pray, but that prayer was fading. That hope was fading. 
And so this incense that was being lifted up was a symbol of the prayers of God's people and the prayers of Zechariah as well. And then, after 400 years of silence, the silence was broken. It was broken by an angel, Gabriel, appearing before Zechariah, letting him know that God was going to answer in a way that solved Zechariah's issue and the nation's issue at the same time. He said that Zechariah was indeed going to have a child, a son, who would be a forerunner, who would run ahead of the rescuer, the Messiah, and his name would be John, and he would point people to Jesus. Now, uh, the angel's words took him by surprise. The angel took him by surprise, as you can imagine, and he asked for proof that this would be so. Now, at first you would think, what an odd thing. An angel appears before me. I'm going to believe whatever he says. But if you have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and you still haven't gotten an answer to your prayer request, somewhere along the way you begin to despair, don't you? You begin to wonder if uh, your prayer is ever going to be answered. And I think Zechariah was in that state of mind. And so even though there was this remarkable visitation by an angel who said, your prayer is going to be answered, he still wanted proof. And so God gave an unusual proof to him. God had been silent for 400 years before he spoke to the angel Gabriel at this point. And so Zechariah was going to have to be silent for nine months until his baby would be born. And when the old priest passed out of the holy place into the place where the rest of the worshipers were, he was unable to speak. And the people knew that something supernatural had taken place when Zechariah was so close to the most holy place, the very presence of God. And for the next nine months, Zechariah lived in his silent world. It gave him time to think. It gave him time to reflect on Scripture. It gave him time to stare at his wife's growing belly in wonder. It gave him time to replay the words of the angel over and over in his head. And he became a deeper man spiritually because of this imposed silence. You know, silence can deepen us, right? When we email too much or post on social media too much or yak too much, it's hard to go deep into any particular subject. Uh, but when we get silent, we can go deeper. You know, Charles Simeon was a Methodist pastor of the 1700s, and he was a very popular speaker, and somebody asked him one time why he didn't accept more speaking engagements, considering how many times he got invited somewhere. And here's what he said. I compare myself to bottled small beer. Being corked up and opened only twice a week, I make a good report. But if I were opened every day, I should soon be as flat as ditch water. <laughs> Zechariah was bottled up for nine months. And when he was uncorked, he made a good report. That's this song that we see in Luke chapter 1, this song that burst out of him. This song burst out of him on the eighth day, uh, which was the day of the naming ceremony for his son. Everybody gathered together, and um, they asked who the, what they were going to name the boy. And... Uh, Zechariah had been told by the angel Gabriel that he was to be named John, but he still wasn't able to speak. And so it was Elizabeth who said, his name is John. And everybody sort of objected at this point and said, of course his name is not going to be John. It's going to be Zechariah. This is a son born in your old age. It's going to be Zechariah. Zechariah called for a tablet and he wrote, his name is John. 
And as soon as he wrote that out, he could speak. And as soon as he was able to speak, he sang this song that Jennifer read to us just a moment ago. Now his song has two stanzas, so to speak. The first stanza was addressed to God, and the second stanza was addressed to his little boy. The first stanza tells us that we need to praise God for the deliverance that Jesus brings. The second stanza tells us that we need to prepare others for the deliverance that Jesus brings. I want you to write both of those things down on your sermon notes. Your sermon notes are in your print bulletin. If you'll pull them out, you'll probably need them as we refer to some of the verses that are included in there as well. So write in your sermon notes this first point. Praise God for the deliverance that Jesus brings. Praise God for the deliverance that Jesus brings. Now that's what we learned from the first stanza of Zachariah's Christmas Carol. The first stanza, so to speak, is found in verses 68 through 75. The old priest Zechariah knew that his son would grow up to point people to the Messiah. And so he sang in praise for that Messiah that John was going to point to. In verse 70, when he declared that God had raised up a horn of salvation for us, he was not singing about his son at that point. He was singing about the Messiah that his son would point to. The Messiah was referred to as the horn of salvation. An animal's strength, an animal's forcefulness are concentrated in its horns. Jesus was all of God's strength and all of God's forcefulness concentrated together. Jesus would come and bring about rescue. Jesus would come and help us understand who God is. He is then the horn of salvation. And we find here, as Zechariah continues to sing, that uh, in verse 70 he said that God had raised up this horn of salvation to fulfill prophecy from long ago. I don't know if you've ever sat down and done a study of all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his coming. I mean, just look at Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53. These are profound prophecies that were fulfilled in startling detail by the life of Jesus. The Jewish Christian scholar Alfred Eldersheim found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah and Jesus fulfilled them all. Zechariah went on to say that Jesus would not only fulfill the prophecies, but he would fulfill the promises. In verse 72, the old man said the Messiah was coming to complete a covenant. A covenant, what is that? It is a contract. It is a pact. It is an agreement between two parties. You are buying a house or you're selling a house. You enter into a contract with the other person, the other party, and you're going to give a certain amount of money and they're going to give you a house that's in good shape. There's a contract there. What kind of contract is being referred to here? Well, God had made a number of promises to his people in the Old Testament that he would be with them, that he would rescue them, that he would stand beside them, that he would uh, strengthen them. And the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, was God's way of fulfilling all of those promises. So why was God going to raise up this horn of salvation in fulfillment of prophecies and in fulfillment of promises? We find in verse 74 that Zechariah said it was to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. Rescue and service. To rescue us from the hands of our enemies to serve him without fear. Well, that's the Christian life in a single sentence, isn't it? Rescue and service. 
We read in uh, this place, in, in this verse, that, that uh, verse 74 says that God has rescued us from the hand of our enemies. Of course, Zechariah didn't know how that was going to be fulfilled, but you and I know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus came to rescue us from our spiritual enemy, our accuser, Satan, by dying on a cross to take away our sin, the guilt of our sin, and the eternal punishment we deserve for our sin. God rescued us from the hands of our spiritual enemy by having his son die in our place on a cross. We are rescued in that way. But that's not all the Christian life is about. It's not only about rescue, it's also about service. We have been rescued from the hand of our enemy to serve him without fear, according to verse 74. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we are told that we are saved not by works, but we are saved for good works. We are not saved by doing a bunch of good things for God, but once he has rescued us, we are called on to serve him. We're called on to do the things that he wants us to do. And so the summary of the Christian life is found in this one verse, that we are rescued with a great privilege of, from this point on, serving him throughout our lives. Now I want you to think about this point in the first stanza of Zechariah's Christmas carol. This Christmas, are you planning to praise God for the deliverance that Jesus brings? Let's not take for granted that that question is automatically going to be yes for all of us. For some of us, it's not going to be yes because we're not believers yet. You know, there are a great number of people in our world and in our own culture who celebrate Christmas without believing in the Jesus of Christmas. Richard Dawkins, a militant atheist in Great Britain, he's somebody who has often said that even though he doesn't believe that there's a God, so he certainly doesn't believe that there's the Son of God, that Jesus was the Son of God, he doesn't believe that, but every Christmas he sings the Christmas carols. Why? Not because he believes the content of them, but they make him uh, warm and fuzzy inside because it reminds him of his childhood and, and it's part of his heritage, it's part of his culture. You know, there are a number of people who still uh, believe in that way today. They disbelieve, but they practice Christmas without Jesus. You know, I read a story um, uh, a few years ago uh, about a time, uh, an incident in Chicago. Uh, someone nabbed the figurine of the infant Jesus out of this life-sized nativity in downtown Chicago. And it made headlines because the image was an irreplaceable hand-carved Italian masterpiece which had been given as a gift to the people of Chicago. And when I read that story, I thought, what a perfect picture of some people's Christmas celebration. It is a celebration without Jesus. The baby is missing. But it's not just non-believers who sometimes miss out on celebrating Jesus at Christmas time. Sometimes it's those of us who are believers who let all the busyness, all the craziness of the holiday, all the things we have to check off our to-do list, so occupy our minds that we don't spend any time just sitting down and praising God for the deliverance that he has brought us. According to the first stanza of Zechariah's Christmas Carol, that's the thing we need to do at Christmas time. We need to praise God for the deliverance Jesus brings. Here's a second thing I want you to write down in your notes though. Prepare others for the deliverance that Jesus brings. Christmas is a time to praise God for Jesus, but it's also a time to prepare others for Jesus. And that was on Zechariah's mind too, as you can see in the second stanza of his song, as we find it in verses 76 through 79. Now as verse 76 begins, notice how the old priest turns his thoughts 
to his own son here. In the first stanza, the first set of verses, he's singing about the Messiah. But now he's singing to his son. And he looked down at this unexpected blessing of his old age, bundled up in his arms. He sang over his son about his hopes and his expectations for him. Sons want to hear their dads say they're proud of them. Sons want to hear their dads say that they have great expectations for them. Sons long to hear the hopes that their dads have for them. I read a few years ago about a seminar offered by churches called Letters from Dad. Thousands of men have gone through this four-month course, carpenters and lawyers, oil-filled workers and chefs, fathers and grandfathers, executives in business suits and blue-collar guys. It's the brainchild of a guy named Greg Vaughn. And he tells the story of how it came about. After his father died, he was standing in his garage, his father's garage, looking at all these boxes of memorabilia, and he was rifling through these boxes because there was one thing he was interested in. He wanted some note, some evidence from his dad that his dad had loved him, that his dad had been proud of him, and he never found anything like that. And he swore that that wasn't going to be the case for his own kids. And he decided he would start writing letters to them, letters about how proud he was of them, letters about how he loved them, letters about the things he liked to do with them at different stages of their lives. And after he did that for his own kids, he realized there might be some other guys who would want to do that too and might need help in doing that. And so that's how Letters from Dad developed. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about this. At Christmas, God didn't just send his son. God prepared a preparer. And in this song, we see a letter from Dad. In this song, Zechariah is singing directly to his son John about his hopes for him and what he expects him to do in his life. Look at verse 76. And you, child, would be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And that's, of course, exactly what John the Baptist did. He prepared the way of the Messiah. He pointed people to Jesus. And that was his entire work in his short life. God didn't just send his son. God prepared a preparer. God considered an essential part of Christmas, not just to send his son at Christmas time, but to send somebody who would prepare the world for his son. And like I said earlier, when someone reads the Gospel of Luke for the first time, they might get the impression from the first 80 verses of the Gospel of Luke that this book's about John, not about Jesus. That's how, that's how much is, is, is talked about John in the first 80 verses. I mean, look at it. There's Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. Then there's all the details about Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then there's the naming ceremony, right down to all the details. And then Zechariah's song. When you read the first 80 verses that begin Luke's gospel, nearly all the verses are about the preparer. And that lets us know that God expects at Christmas time for us to praise him, but also to prepare others to praise him as well. God still prepares preparers today. When you hear somebody's story about how they came into a relationship with Jesus, you are likely somewhere along the way to hear how somebody prepared them for Jesus. Maybe it was a loving Sunday school teacher from their childhood, or they'll tell you about an influential 
camp counselor at youth camp, or they'll tell you about a Christian colleague who befriended them at work, or they'll tell you about a Christian neighbor who spent time with them. All these people were preparers, and we're called upon to do that kind of work as well. You can be a preparer through the friendships that you build and the needs that you meet and the kindness you extend and the gospel you share. You can be a preparer as well. A Quaker mystic once said that God, and here's a quote, God plucks the world out of our hearts and then he hurls the world into our hearts where we and he together carry it in infinitely tender love. I like that. Let me say it again. God plucks the world out of our hearts and then he hurls the world into our hearts where we and he together carry it in infinitely tender love. I wonder if you only understand the first part of what that Quaker mystic said. Do you believe that Christianity is about plucking the world out of your heart? And of course, that's part of it. There are so many priorities that are mixed up in the world. We need to rearrange those priorities right. There are so many... uh, Things that people find are perfectly all right to do out in the world, but we get into the Christian faith and we realize that's not the case. We've got to, we've got to always be plucking the world out of our heart. But, but this mystic says it's not just a matter of plucking the world out of our hearts. It's also God hurling the responsibility for the world back into our hearts where we and he carry it in infinitely tender care. So we need to praise God for the deliverance that Jesus brings, but we also need to prepare others for the deliverance that Jesus brings. Before we close, though, I want to speak directly to those of you who are not yet believers. You're not yet Christians. You have not yet said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody has been preparing you to say yes. Somebody has been pointing you to Jesus. And maybe today's the day that you need to respond and say yes to him. Remember what I said, that the Christian life could be summarized in this one little sentence, that Jesus has come to rescue us so that we may serve him without fear. Rescue and service. All of us need rescue because we are separated from God because of our sins. Jesus died on the cross to remove that which separates us from God so we can have a forever relationship with God now. But isn't it wonderful to know that Christianity isn't just about the sweet by and by off in the future, but it's also about a life of meaning and value and worth right here and now. We are rescued, but we also now have a chance to serve him without fear. Isn't that the kind of life that you'd want to lead? Isn't that the kind of life you'd want to live? If that's the case, then I want you to bow in prayer with me, and I want to lead us in a word of prayer. Maybe you need to pray this prayer in your own heart in order to become a believer. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you for dying on the cross to take away my sin. Take it away now and give me a clean heart inside. And help me learn more about you and how to follow you all the days of my life. I want to, re- I want to be rescued and I want to serve you in a meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful way all the days of my life. Now, Father, as new Christians and as longtime Christians, we all recognize that you have prepared us to be preparers. Help us point attention to Jesus this Christmas. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled, For All the People. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.